Fucking fuck. There's <laughs> <laughs> such a delay. All right, so the reason there's a delay this week is because this is our first ever hybrid podcast where I'm here in Adelaide, South Australia with a guest um, and we have Maz joining us on Zoom from Sydney. So Maz, say something, make some noise, move your hands. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Maz is also here. So our guest today is Anissa Varastin. So Anissa is my sister. She is also a clinical sexologist. And I don't know why I need to say this, but she's also a mother. You know, it's like she brings the philosophy of a mother to the table. Fucking fuck. Let's go. Go and do meditation. Go and do meditation. I was like, I was like, man, she's not going to be sit down. Masturbation. I wasn't empathizing with Hitler. Fucking fuck. Anything you want to do, <laughs> be a professor. Wink, wink. Clearly, you spent too much time on porn. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Maz. How do you feel? I managed to convince Maz. This is my guest of choice. Are you on board <laughs> with this guest? Or are you not on board? Yeah, I am indeed. I've actually got like two two things I'm interested to uh, ask her. Um, one is about the letter she sent you. Yeah. Um. You know what was why she decided to do it, and did she did she foresee that letter having such big impact? Because as we sort of talked about it last time, that letter had a lot of impact for you. Okay. Okay. And I'll just clarify, just in case people don't listen to our episodes in chronological order. Um. When I was fifteen. I was hardcore, religious, you know, I was praying every day. I wouldn't masturbate at all, you know, good boy. And then my sister sent me a letter giving me an introduction to the world of adulthood. Let's just leave it at that. Um, Let's so, not leave it at what? that. That's so creepy. <laughs> okay, that does sound creepy. I didn't realize. Okay, anyway, so how would you summarize it? Because I don't want to get into it yet, but just in case people don't know, I yeah, want them to have an intro. I sent you the letter because I knew that my parents wouldn't talk about sex with Sammy. He, they, they didn't talk about it with any of us. And and these these were the things that I really wish someone had told me when I was 15. And I was also like Sammy, very religious. And, and it wasn't just about sex. It was also about some other things. For example, it's okay to question your fundamental beliefs about the world, about religion, about God. And it's okay, again, to question that and change your mind many times throughout life. Um, And because our age gap is very significant, I'm 18 years older than Samim. I was kind of like a, a mother figure for him. And... Yeah, and I knew that he wouldn't sit down <laughs> to have this conversation <laughs> because I had similar conversations with my younger sister as well, but more face-to-face because she was more open to having these conversations. But I knew Samin wouldn't. Uh, he would feel very awkward. And most likely, yeah, at that age, I was, yeah, I would feel awkward myself. So I just put it all in a letter and I sent it to him. And in terms of impact, I was hoping that it would all be very positive impact. But I hear from him that he 
resented it for a while that I planted this idea of sexuality and masturbation in his head and that it was curious to go and see what it is but now as a clinical sexologist I know that that is not the case you can't by providing sexuality education you can't encourage kids and young people to be sexual it's usually the opposite what I imagine it happened is that Samin was a late bloomer and I I just I believe that very soon afterwards, regardless of the letter that I sent him, he would feel sexual. He would masturbate, or he would have these feelings of sexual feelings, and then potentially shame as well. So I was hoping that this letter would clarify that it's a universal human experience; is not specific to you, and you're not a bad person if if you feel that way. Mm. That's, uh, you know, it, it sounds like a very, very well thought out letter that a lot of people probably in the world could uh, could, <laughs> could receive and yeah. get some benefit from it. That's it, guys. I, I sell this letter $10 per page. If anyone's interested, let me know. <laughs> uh, I actually had another question for you as well. So... I find people who choose to do things that are a little bit different really interesting uh, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, there's a lot of people going the mainstream ways and there's fewer people going these um, other streams. And I find that really fascinating. So I just wanted to ask you uh, what sort of inspired you to take the road less traveled? Mm. I think there were multiple influences, multiple factors that led me to choose this path. Um, some of them were negative sexual experiences that I had in you know teenage years and and as a young adult, um, but also my personal curiosity. And I am a type of person that I question things a lot, and having been raised in a religious and very restrictive community and upbringing, having a very restrictive upbringing, I, I questioned the values around sexuality and the silence around sexuality a lot when I was in my early 20s. So can I just ask you a question? Like, what do you mean by, by sexuality? Because like, to me, that word seems a bit ambiguous. What does that mean? Sexuality is anything related to sex, but not just sex. So it's also around um, gender identity, gender roles, sexual expression, sexual feelings, desires, fantasies, thoughts, values, anything that mm. directly or indirectly is related to sex. Mm. And so... Yeah, I had a lot of questions, like many young people, about sex. And I was, until maybe I was 20, 21, very active in the Baha'i community and had very strong religious beliefs. And I remember this, as an example, this interaction that I had with some of the community members. We were in a, at a meeting and we were talking about, okay, so who's going to have conversations with non-believers about the Baha'i faith and introducing it to them 
and what a couple of the groups that were identified and most people weren't comfortable were that the language that was used was um homosexuals and prostitutes and I put my hands up I'm like yeah yeah me I'll go and talk to them because I selfishly probably I thought that this would be my only opportunity to go and talk to someone about what what does it mean to be attracted to the same gender what does it mean to be a sex worker and um so even you know having a very religious frame of mind I was still very curious about sex and then I studied psychology and I graduated with a Bachelor of Psychology and I started working as a counsellor but in a sexual health context so I was a sexual health counsellor. What's sexual health counsellor? So we were providing counselling to people who had bloodborne viruses like HIV, hepatitis. And in that context, I had to talk to people about sex and safer sex, using contraception, things like that. And I found that was very interesting for me. I found that I felt comfortable, not initially, but eventually getting comfortable to have these conversations with people and very empowering as well that that these were the conversations that not many people could have or were willing to have. So I decided to go back and do my Master of Sexology. Thanks for that. (laughs) Well, I didn't even know that. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) See, it was those Baha'is, you know. they it's, It's their fault that she became a sexologist. There you go. What? Yeah, they were like, oh, go talk to the... See, who puts homosexual and... Pros- sorry, no offense, sorry. <laughs> I just realized that question is like... Is... is uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was going <laughs> to... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sex workers, yes. Um, What's your experience? I'm curious. Like, when you did go... Because now, I guess, in a very progressive context, mm. even my own personal beliefs, I think there's nothing wrong with having sex workers and I actually think they lead to a more prosperous mm-hmm. society. But but as someone who was religious, how how did it like did you feel very, very judgmental or like did you not judge them as much as you thought? No, I was more curious than judgmental. I yeah. I didn't end up in that context having conversations with sex workers, but I did have conversations with many people from the LGBTIQ plus community and yeah those conversations were very enlightening and very helpful and they were also some of the influences on me shifting my worldview and an ideology but like in in what context did you actually get a chance to talk with people from that community like were they like go convert these people or like yeah so that was the idea go and talk about the faith with these people but and this was the time that we were in Turkey, so we were waiting for our oh, um, humanitarian visa. Yeah. Oh, shit. And so there were many, many people from the LGBTQ plus community from Iran who had to flee Iran to seek mm. refuge there. And so there was an opportunity there to go and meet them and talk to them. And yeah, and they converted me. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> and yeah, I was I was gonna say, how did um so at one point at what point did your um, religious beliefs started to shift uh, or have they shifted I'm making an assumption actually mm. so like how, how did how did those interact because yeah it sounds fascinating yeah it was around the same time it was around the, maybe it started as I said I was always um, a bit rebellious and questioning things and oh, yeah. but yeah but when we left Iran and I guess because my resources were not as dependent on the community and my parents as they were before then I had a lot more freedom to to choose what works for me in terms of my belief system and so it was around that time that we were in Turkey that I started to question things and um, experiment with yeah sex and mm. learn more about sex and talk to people of different genders and different sexualities okay i was actually like there's there's a few things i really want to talk about but one thing that you briefly mentioned in the beginning of the episode is the whole idea of like you said that the research shows that by talking to people about sex and educating them about sex they're not more likely to have risky sex or just sex in general. Like how, that sounds a bit counterintuitive. Like, mm-hmm. can you yeah. elaborate on that? Yeah. So research, and this is especially providing sex education to younger people, to children, teenagers, shows that children are exposed to pornography, to ideas about sex and relationships from a very young age and it's not just porn but you know diverse range of media that we consume social media or just you know mainstream media and so they are receiving education and messages about what sex is what sex isn't what sex is valuable what sex is acceptable what not so it's not that suddenly someone comes and introduces the idea of sex. They're already receiving these ideas from the environment. Mm. But as a parent or as a caregiver, if you provide comprehensive sexuality education, if you provide the right information, it's more likely that you delay that curiosity that usually leads young people to experiment with sex. Um, So Mm. research shows that children, young people who receive sex education especially at home they are less likely to engage in sex early um, at an earlier age mm. yeah nice no i think i think like the only thing that made my brain just like just like wiggle a little bit mm-hmm. was um the part of you said like the right sexuality education because mm. i feel like it's maybe a bit subjective and maybe as like do you live in a very left-wing progressive sector of a western civilization or you know are you more of a conservative uh you know more eastern community which they would say proper sexuality education is don't have sex till marriage mm-hmm. like you know so how, how how do you traverse like that yeah and this is something that i talk about in the workshops that I deliver to parents is that if your value is you only need to have sex within marriage 
and that's your personal value, that's the value of your family, it's okay. And um, you, it's your job as a parent to teach about your values to your child. And no one is saying, don't do that, but don't stop at that. That is not enough information for a child. Uh, even if you're telling your child that you need to wait until you get married or you're in a committed long-term relationship, your child needs to know uh, how to protect themselves from SDIs, how to protect themselves from getting pregnant, how they know they're ready to have sex. It's not just about marriage. How can they know that they feel safe with their sexual partner, whether it's a husband or wife or a casual sexual partner. So there are many other things that we need to teach our children, mm. even if it's just within that construct of marriage. Mm. Yeah. Or wow. how to say no. Like just because you're married to someone doesn't mean that you have to have sex with them every single time they want to. They want you to. Wait, what? No way. <laughs> <laughs> shit. I'm not getting married now. Oh, shit. I thought that was... All right, I'm going to have to send a few text messages after this podcast. <laughs> okay, wow. So, like, something, this is a theme that, like, Anissa has brought up in our family, which is about um, sexual abuse, and especially sexual abuse of children, and how educating kids from a young age about their body and maybe even their sexuality can help them communicate with parents if they're being touched in uncomfortable ways like can you elaborate on that and even like how common is sexual abuse like for kids unfortunately very common and so again research shows that children who don't feel shame to talk about sex and sexuality who have been given language to talk about their bodies about their genitals who have been taught about what's an okay touch, what's not okay touch, they are more likely to seek help. And they are less likely to be traumatized by a negative experience or an abuse. And also the, there is this misconception that sexual abuse of a child happens by a random stranger that, you know, you just, I don't know, you in a park and someone kidnaps your child and they go off in the public toilet and abuse them whereas that is not true that's very rare that something like that mm -hmm. happens majority of the cases the perpetrator is someone known to the child known to the family and also sexual abuse is a process and usually the perpetrator grooms the child through this process to finally get to a point of sexual abuse and a child who feels safe enough to talk about sex to ask sexual questions from a parent is more likely to seek help very early on in this process before it gets to a full-blown sexual assault mm. so like grooming the child as in like it's it's not like a one-off act of like that's right um danger it's more like tricking the child or manipulating yeah 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 so the child thinks it's okay or thinks it's yeah, also normal. yeah so befriending the child and also building a relationship based on secrecy mm -hmm. and so if you teach your child that you know you shouldn't keep a secret from parents or no one should touch you in any way regardless of where on the body and tell you not to tell anyone this is not okay so if you have given this sort of information to a child again another piece of this puzzle is that most of the time sexual abuse 
starts off by non-genital touch. So just the touch that feels intuitively wrong. Mm. But if a child is not taught about these things, they are they don't know when to seek help whether something is is happening. Yeah, like that actually gets me quite frustrated because the whole idea of at least in my I would say you could generalize this to Middle Eastern culture. Like the fact that there's lots of taboo, mm-hmm. there's lots of things that you just mm-hmm. don't talk about. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. and that like as a child, you should feel as though you can talk about anything to your parents, even if it's fucked up, even if it's shit, even if it's like, hey dad, I just killed someone. Like you should be able to, especially because a child they can't protect themselves. So mm-hmm. they need a parent. And even if let's just say they did kill someone, maybe they have psychopathy or some sort of disorder, the parent can make sure that the harm is minimized. Mm-hmm. So there's 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 no benefit whatsoever of taboo. And there is no benefit in my eyes of keeping it to yourself and the parents not wanting to hear what the child has to say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so frustrating. Mm. Like Maz, do you, do you have experience like that? Yeah, like, I think it's it's like just part of that cultural narrative. Uh, really like certain, it's not it's it's less about the parents, more about the cultural narrative. Like some things you just don't talk in the culture. Like yeah, or like you know, in Iran when I was going to high school, I remember like. <laughs> So you know how you were talking about your sort of masturbation, how that was. Yeah, yeah. So for me, like I remember in, in school, there was like this uh this teacher, like he was teaching um a religion. And he said something along the lines of if you masturbate, like I don't even know why someone would say this. This is so bizarre. If you masturbate your your hand will grow hair, and then people oh will know. And then the minute the minute he said that, I can go like I I, I was like looking at my hand. Everyone else, everyone was looking at their hand. <laughs> <laughs> but there's like thirty guys just looking at their head, like oh shit. Yeah, that, that was very common. Even at like girls' schools, they would say things like this. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's really terrifying because yeah. then like because it's like you'll be marked by this like mm-hmm. big mark where everyone can see yeah. how you have done wrong which yeah. is just yeah shit yeah that this is the thing it's 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 so fascinating to me the lengths that some communities go to mm. to prohibit sexual expression like like i was a victim of that i would say but but it's just so interesting because so, so the whole narrative is like I hope I'm not doing anyone any injustice, but the narrative is sex is this super special thing, you know, um, and you shouldn't. So it's super special thing for marriage, but you also shouldn't be thinking about it on a day to day basis. It's very perverted. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you look at a woman and think she's mm-hmm. sexually appealing? Like, what's wrong with your mind? It's so impure. So then they're like, okay, you should not think about it and only think about it like when you're married. It's like, okay, that's fine. But then by making it such a big deal, they're kind of feeding into the narrative 
that like everyone is a pervert. So it's like they are perverts for even coming up with that rule. Because no. it's, like, it's like I wasn't the... thinking that before you told me not to think that. Mm. <laughs> it's like the pink elephant thing, right? Like, you know, if I tell you don't think, think of a pink elephant, you'll, you'll think of a pink elephant. <laughs> even though you weren't thinking about it before, I told you not to think about it, right? Yeah, there's something counterintuitive about like prohibition because, you know, it's like that inner rebellious side of us. It's like, wait, what? Like, it's like right now, like, let me think of something like I, if you tell me like, oh, when you go to the toilet to take a shit, don't take your phone with you. And then I'm like, wait, what? Now I want to take my phone with me. <laughs> but it's more than that. It's not just a psychological thing. It's also, we are all animals and you know, sexual drive is part of most people's experiences of being a human. And yeah, I think this is one of the most harmful and damaging things that I see in my professional practice that religious people come after they get married with a lot of sexual problems. I can't have sex with my partner. Oh, and, oh shit. Why have I never thought of that? Yeah, because throughout their life, they've been told sex is disgusting, it's dirty, it's perverted, and it's, yeah, you should save it until you're married. But then it's not like a switch that you can turn off as soon as you're married. All of those messages are still there. Mm. And so you have all sorts of sexual dysfunction when it comes to a loving relationship within marriage. Yeah, that's actually, that that makes so much sense. But I don't know why I never thought of that because it's like, like if you ask a religious person, they don't say sex is bad. They say, no, sex is great. You know, two souls connect. Mm. You know, it's it's a pleasure given to us by God. So it's like they agree it's important, but then it's like they're fucking their own sexual life <laughs> later on. Yeah, wow. I didn't think about that either, how like it could uh, carry through to that context. And then, you know, because it's like if you've got this association that like, you know, sex is mm-hmm. bad, then it's hard to undo that association, even in the context where the religion says it's okay to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Shit. Well, I have a topic I really want to talk about. Mm. But actually, there's I'm going to give any sort of options. There's three topics we can talk about. <laughs> First one is polyamory. Second one is kink and BDSM. Third one is transgenderism. If that's even, did I say, is that right? Is, did I? <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Yeah. But anyway, take a pick. Gender identity. Sorry, yeah. gender identity, yes. I, um, I don't want to pick. I think I, this is your podcast and whatever that feels right for you guys, I'm happy to talk about any of right, Maz, take I a mean, pick. I think because with Matt, uh, last time with Matt, we sort of like talked about polyamory, but neither of us is by no means uh, an experience later on an expert in it but like what Ma- Maz, do... don't tell people what <laughs> don't tell people i'm not polyamorous <laughs> <laughs> all right guys you guys know my secret i, I i'm i'm boring monogamous <laughs> person um, yeah so it would be good to go go polyamory i reckon all right all right polyamory get excited guys polyamory it's gonna fix all of your life problems so yeah. you said last time we talked about polyamory. Yeah, we also with last episode we talked with uh, Matt oh. Crossley. Yeah, and we all have a pretty positive um, view on polyamory, mm-hmm. and the the pathway that we took, which I'm curious what you think, as someone who's actually quite knowledgeable about it, 
we were saying that theoretically, mm. someone like me and someone like Matt, it's difficult for us in monogamous relationship because you might feel somewhat trapped because if you want to break up with that person, mm-hmm. there's a lot of guilt. And let's not get into the healthy psychology of this because mm-hmm. it's obviously not healthy, but you feel you feel a lot of guilt and you're like, oh, I really hurt that person. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a polyamorous relationship, then if you break up with one person or two people or three people, they have each other to like lean on. So you feel less bad about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that like a reasonable thing to say? <laughs> It's one form of polyamory because you can be in a relationship with person A and person B, but they are not necessarily in a relationship. They oh. may they may not even know see so, each other ever. So they're monogamous with you, but you're polyamorous. With Maybe them. they may be monogamous with you, or they may have their own sort of branches. You know that are not. They may not be in a relationship with you. Okay, all right. So all right. you can be in a relationship, say with. Jessica and I don't know Paria and Paria, whoever <laughs> else, like a third person. And let's give it give the third person a name. Samantha. Samantha. Okay, and Jessica <laughs> and Jessica and Samantha may never ever meet each other. Ah. For example, they may be in in a monogamous relationship with you separately or they may have their own so it's like a huge fucking network of people that's possible yeah it's not like everyone is in the same relationship with everybody in that relationship so it won't solve your problem no shit (laughs) shit all right matt if you're listening to this Uh, we fucked up but let's talk about kink if it's up to me because that's that's juicy and that's an area that i specialize okay and and i'm just gonna um just put it out there Mm. that i never like to feel as though I'm in an echo chamber. So even if I agree with things you say, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we might have to fight a little bit. Yeah. But um, no hard feelings. Um, okay. So kink. Maz, how about you ask a question? Because I have a billion questions, but I'm curious, you know, you've got a clinical sexologist in front of you. Kink can be the same. What do you want to know? So one thing is like, so I went to this like uh, festival called uh, Burning Sea mm-hmm. um, and there was this like, this show thing and there was, uh, it was like spanking, but mm-hmm. to like, I've never seen a spanking like that. Like, mm-hmm. like, like that. <laughs> I would have stopped at like point one, but they went to like point 15. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was getting a little bit uncomfortable just even watching or like that's gonna hurt like like mm-hmm. really painful to like even I can't see how she would sit down because it was like like after that how she could sit down so I, I don't know I guess but then I was looking at her facial expression and she seemed to be mm-hmm. enjoying it she, she, she was loving it and then I was like thinking like yeah, I was struggling with my own feelings in relation to this because I was feeling like, oh my god, that that looks like uh, that's hurting and it's like mm-hmm. pain. But then she's like smiling, like, like mm-hmm. I don't know. I was just confused. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and so, what is your question? Um, I don't know. Just what, what what do you what do you make sense of my confusion? Because mm. I couldn't make sense of it, so I guess that's the yeah. question. Yeah. So, um. You know, sensation play, which spanking is a type of sensation play, or it's called impact play, 
that is one type of kink or one type of BDSM. Can you actually define kink and BDSM? That's going to take us down different okay. rabbit hole. Then... But yeah, very briefly, I will say yeah. that kink is is any sex or play that falls outside the line of what society defines as normative sex. But then the question is, what is normative sex? Like yes. who can define what normative Holding sex hands is? Holding hands could be normative sex. <laughs> holding hands could be normative sex no, but really like is oral sex normative sex is anal sex normative sex it is for some people it isn't for some other people mm. it is in some cultures it is in some other cultures so it's very contextual it's very cultural yeah yeah and um and if you want to just think about normative sex as missionary under the bed sheets in a dark room then anything other than that is kink you know a bit of yeah. biting and scratching and slapping on the ass that's technically bdsm so yeah. it's it's a very mm, subjective very contextual very cultural practice or practices range of practices but anyway that that's i think a very yeah yeah, yeah deeper conversation but in relation to what you just said, Masood, um, sensation play and is is one type of BDSM, and it's not about pain. And I think this is something that can create confusion because what that person is experiencing is not pain; they are experiencing intense sensations, which is pleasurable for them. Mm. pain is out of control pain is something that is yeah you can't control but in the context of bdsm and kink this is all negotiated beforehand the person mm. asks for where exactly on their body they want that sensation and what intensity they want that sensation and who they want it by and so there are so many elements that they define the parameters and therefore it feels pleasurable also, a different, an example or analogy that you may relate to, or some people may relate to, is eating chili. Do you like chili? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so for someone who doesn't like chili, why the fuck would you want to eat something that would burn your whole mouth or whole, your mm. whole face is on fire? But for someone, I, I also love chili. For people who like chili or love chili, it's that sensation that is intense but pleasurable. You may even like your your eyes may get teary and you know I don't know you may experience something really significant. It's the same with yeah. with BDSM. Ah, so like that reminds me of a conversation I had with Samin one time. It was about like you know if you consciously decide to, um, if you choose to do something, regardless of mm. what how that thing is, like in the context we were talking about it was like if you choose to join a cult mm -hmm. like you mm. you consciously evaluate it and you're in the right frame of mind and you're like you know what it sounds like this cult is good for me and you choose to jo join it we were sort of talking about how like in that situation that seems I was okay with that mm -hmm. I was like you know what they, that person choosing to do that so like I think that that's an uh, element of conscious decision mm -hmm. and choice really like is is ringing a few bells for me and understanding that situation a little bit more I think and, and consent you. and consent yeah. I think yeah that's yeah. pretty important consent yeah. and control yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And also having an exit that if you change your mind, mm. you can call off the scene. But yeah, yeah, I remember one conversation that you guys had was around, can you consent to be someone's slave? And and my answer would be, yes, you can. And, and actually, in fact, there are people who, who in the context of kink, um, consent to be some, owned by someone and be a slave for that person. Wait, wait, can I, can I just like, I'm trying to be devil's advocate now, and mm-hmm. I, I'm struggling to like, it's like, I personally believe this is like, I talked about it in the previous episode, but I'm like, as long as there's two consenting adults and it's pleasurable, I don't mm-hmm. see why anything should be prohibited. But <laughs> are people that engage in uh, this sort of behavior, are they mentally deranged or are they mentally unwell mm-hmm. and should we be giving them help instead of um allowing them or, or making them not feel shameful about something that's potentially dangerous and harmful mm. do you want me to answer that yeah um the answer is who are these people because as i said kinks definition of kink is so broad non-normative sexual practices and i think everybody is kinky a a little bit kinky at least Mm -hmm. because everybody enjoys a level of say intense sensations at some point in their life and that intense sensation is a bit more than your average your threshold whatever it is it's just again like chili some people like a little bit of chili some people like really that those hot things um i don't know what they're called ghost pepper chili yeah something like that yeah so then everybody is kinky everybody's perverted by that definition basically number one this this is one thing the other thing is that there is no evidence no research no study to back it up that people who have kinky fantasies or behaviors it's because there's a mental health problem or even a history of trauma because this is something that many people associate that or maybe something was done to you when you were younger or you experienced some sort of trauma and you're trying to um, recover from that by doing these things Um, there is no scientific evidence to to back up this idea Mm, so they're psychologically healthy people by definition of our current society yeah um can still engage in 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 risk could you label it as risky sexual behavior or not really well i guess again risk is very relative because yeah some some kink practices they are riskier than others say if it's breast play um so playing with you know airflow things like that strangulation um that that's they're you know risky practice versus a role play Mm. that you just you know put on a costume and pretend to be someone like the risks there are much smaller but then again i think it's this whole idea that kink is this thing out there and some specific people deranged people do it but in reality rough sex i believe is kink and it's riskier than kink because there are no negotiations beforehand. There is no safety plan. There are no out. There is no aftercare. So kink is a very safe container when done right. When done really in, in the framework of kink 
risky awake and central kink than say just your average mainstream rough sex because that's in the heat of the moment someone does something without negotiation without proper consent and yeah you're drunk by your hormones and you're sexually aroused so you may do something that you usually wouldn't do mm, okay all right um like i'm, I'm gen- like not to make this too freudian mm. <laughs> i'm gonna make it a bit freudian but it's like how is would would you say that engaging in kink is actually becoming in touch with our inner child like would you say that's like a um you know if 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 children can play and sometimes their play can be a bit risky mm-hmm. like doing backflips on the trampoline mm-hmm. um why should adults not be able to play as well like like because i feel like for a lot of adults maybe in the bedroom is the only space where they can play mm-hmm. you know and what does play mean i i would define play as um doing something that feels right and feels enjoyable at the time, you know, it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be for a reason. Mm-hmm. And and I think, yeah, like, do you agree with that statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one definition of kink that I really like is childlike play with adult sexual privileges and much cooler toys. Mm, cooler so, toys i like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and i completely agree with that kink first and foremost is play it's just mental recreation so you can do whatever you want within that framework of consensual risk aware consensual um so yes i think it can also provide a great opportunity for these younger parts of yourself to come out and play in a safe environment to be validated to be accepted um for who they are and yeah have fun yeah mm, do you think it's psychologically therapeutic yeah for yeah. sure yeah and, and and is that one of the reasons why it's you're an advocate of kink and BDSM as a clinical sexologist because of the therapeutic benefits or just because it's fun? I Both. I think kink is fun and, and kink is very relevant, as I said, to everyone. And it's not just sex. And this is something that most people are surprised when I say kink is not about sex because most of the time in mainstream media, you see kink in the context of sex and sexuality but kink there are many asexual people in in the kink community across the world the reason is that because it's that psychological pleasure that of that power exchange dynamic Mm. of that play that is really Mm. pleasurable for people that's why they engage in kink so yes it's fun it can be therapeutic and it's it's yeah relevant to everyone so everyone should learn how to do it well and consensually and as much as possible safely mm, I'm, I'm gonna ask maz i've got a question but i want maz to ask a question mm-hmm. before i ask the question well <laughs> I, I was actually gonna ask a question from you so okay why did you decide like what sort of came to your mind to link ink and you know um children how did you how did you link mm-hmm. those okay um well this is something i've been you know thinking about for the last year which is about reconnecting with my inner child um 
you know, whatever that means, you know, it might sound like really fancy language, but it's not. I think for me, it's it's about everything I do has a reason behind it. It's all about efficiency. It's all about like personal growth. Like, am I reading this book to learn or am I just reading it for fun? And it's like, no, I'm reading it to learn something. I want to grow. So I think for me, it's really important, I think, for psychological well-being to play. And I also think sex is fun. So I guess that's why in my head it was like, like as a society or, or even in the context of this conversation, we're talking about kink as like, let's ask a clinical sexologist mm-hmm. and, you know, it's very science backed and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But it's like, well, why can't I just be for mm-hmm. fucking fun? Like, yeah. I think, I think like I want to play dress ups, but I can't, mm-hmm. but maybe if there's a partner that's open-minded enough, mm-hmm. I can just play dress ups with my partner. Yeah. And then it's like, I don't even care about the sex. I just want to play yeah, dress up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and I think there are many activities that now we consider as acceptable for adults, but they were originally for children. Yeah. Dress up parties mm. or coloring in books that are now available for adults as well, because we recognize the importance of play. And just like you said, as adults, which is like productive, productive, it has to have a productive intention and outcome. But yeah, let's just, let's just play. Mm. Another thing that just came to my mind. So you know how you said, you know, if you're reading a book to grow and learn, uh, then you're not reading a book for fun. But can you also, can you have fun with learning and growing? Like, do, do you sometimes have fun with learning and growing? Like, or like, if you have fun with it, or if you're learning and growing, it, it doesn't qualify the, mm. the fun aspect of being a child or something. I'm Look, just interested to know what you think. I, I think it depends. What is your intention for beginning that particular activity mm-hmm. you know so if you read that book purely because you want to grow then i don't think that's play and there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it you can still have fun i don't think that's play but if you if you just pick up the book because you are really interested in it and you're not reading it to get something at the end you just like the book and if you happen to grow in the process i think that can be play. But I think it really comes to the intention behind it. If if you're looking to get something out of it, then mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many kids will play just to get something out of it at the end. I think play, in my opinion, in definition, there's a, there's a frivolity to it, which is you do it because you enjoy doing the activity and not yeah, to get something. You do it for the sake of itself. Mm-hmm. You don't do it for the sake of anything else. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you can play. Like Like I play soccer right now. Like now that I, I'm playing soccer casually in a social team, that's play. Because if we lose 10 nil, I don't care. <laughs> you know, like if I don't get fitter, I don't care. I'm just there because I enjoy it. But when I'm playing for a club, there's mm-hmm. a bit more pressure. I'm I know I'm working on my fitness, on my stamina. You know, I want to score, I want the team to win. If the team loses, then maybe I'm not that happy. Mm. I wouldn't say that childlike play. Mm. That that's Ooh. adults might say it's still playing, it's still a hobby, but it's mm-hmm. not. It, it doesn't fulfill those needs of childlike exploration and frivolity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm uh, I'm happy with that. <laughs> yes, nice. Um. Okay, so I have I have a question for Anissa. Mm-hmm. 
So I actually have two questions, but for the first question, I want to say, all right, I have a friend. His name is Maz. <laughs> he wants to he wants to go home tonight and try kink and BDSM. Mm. <laughs> what 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 would you what do you say to someone who like even someone listening if they're like they have a partner they're like mm-hmm. oh i've been thinking about kink and stuff but i'm a bit scared or like where do i even go or like that's not really me it's like a really weird hippie thing to do mm-hmm. like that's not me i'm just not going to do it but they're really curious what would mm-hmm. you say to them um i would say that reframe kink because you may already be doing some of it anyway so it may be that playfulness that you bring in your sex life and with your sexual partner that you know if you want to talk to your partner about it and say look I really enjoy this aspect of our sex life being playful together or sometimes taking on a different role and I'd like to explore that more not necessarily calling it let's get kinky because it has a lot of negative connotations or if you're someone who's interested in more sensations you can say you know I really enjoy when we do this and I feel this these sensations on my body I'd like to experience more of that let's explore that a little bit was it like right before sex or you just have no no yeah outside of the bedroom for sure um and so you can start off by just thinking about what are some things that are already experiencing and I want more of. So whether that's a psychological mm-hmm. power exchange, maybe that you enjoy more of, and you can say, you know, I'd like to experience more surrender. I like you to take con- more control and, and decide what we do or what sort of positions or what sort of activities, sexual activities we do, or that I'd like to take control that's what I enjoy. Is it okay if we I do more of that, for example, next time that we have sex? So uh, starting off like this, I think, can be very helpful. So building on what you're already enjoying and doing well. Mm, I think that totally makes sense. And I guess open communication mm-hmm. is super important in every level of a relationship. But, but the thing that I think is the most hard part of that, the most difficult part, is it's being vulnerable you know mm-hmm. because it's like sometimes you know i can't speak for everyone but sometimes you you there's a sexual exchange like you're having mm-hmm. sex and the other person does something you like but then you're like you're kind of ashamed of that thing so then you don't explicitly say you like it but like if it happens by chance you're like yes mm-hmm. <laughs> so i guess how for people who are just ashamed mm-hmm. of it or they just they're like scared of judgment from their partner or they just don't want to say it out loud you know how what do you have to say to them i think the chances are that if your partner did it they're okay to do it again Mm. so asking for something is most likely going to help your sex life and sexual uh, connection with your partner versus them thinking oh what's wrong with you because they they've done it by chance maybe or not maybe they even did it intentionally so mm. if you just maybe make it as a compliment and say you know that thing that you did the other day that was really hot like I really enjoyed that mm. can we do a bit more of that and sometimes it may be hard to communicate verbally because of shame because of whatever you can write do write put it in writing in a text message or it, like, can, it can even be very sexually arousing for your partner 
like I'm curious is like weren't it like all of this open communication stuff related to sex I think mm. it's super helpful super mm. adaptive but I feel like there's a fear mm. of is this going to make things awkward you know because I feel like most people enjoy the natural like we, we which this narrative is very dangerous for like consent and stuff because mm. but, but there's this narrative of like you know in the movies like you just grab the person mm-hmm. and you start kissing and then you take everything off the table. And there's like this like romantic, mm-hmm. like super mm-hmm. sexy, like, and in those movies, there's a fucking no communication. Yeah. It's just like, oh, your partner exactly knows what you want and you know what they want. So there's a fear of if you talk, then it kills the vibe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you're, then it's like, it's better to just let it happen by chance and not talk about it. Then mm-hmm. talk about it and potentially fuck it up. And then you lose that really good thing that you liked. Mm-hmm. Is that like reasonable or is that like kind of it's misconceived? A reason- no, it's a reasonable concern to have because I think all of us, we watch the same movies and yeah. we, we receive <laughs> the same sort of messages from our environment all the time. But recognizing that it is a myth that I know when we say let's have sex, I know exactly what my sexual partner wants. Mm. it's not true we are not mind readers and sex means different things to different people bodies are different sensitivity to touch is different so the chances of you getting what you want and you're giving what your partner wants when you talk about it is much higher than just leaving it to chance and I think a really good way is just what you said telling your partner look you know, we've seen all these scenes in the movies that people have sex without any communication, but, you know, I just feel like it's not true. What do you think? And how can I know what you want? How can we um, give each other pleasure in a way that is meaningful, not mm. what we think the other person wants? So I think having a very honest conversation about it. See, that that sparked something. Oh, sorry, Maz, do you want to go first? Yeah, so there's actually another thing that I was going to add to that too. So, you know, when you when you are vulnerable and you sort of say something along those lines, you're actually giving permission to the other person to do the same. Like mm. there's some people have more courage and some people have less courage. Mm-hmm. In, and I'm encouraged just in terms of willingness to put yourself in that vulnerable situation, mm-hmm. right? So like... If you're the more courageous person in this relationship and you open up this conversation, then your partner feels okay to chime in with mm-hmm. their vulnerability and mm. their potential vulnerable request and thing they wanted to say, whereas they wouldn't have opened up if you didn't open up. And in those moments of vulnerabilities and people opening up, I think that's when... Uh, the connection grows deeper, the intimacy grows deeper. And it doesn't even matter about the sexual context, just just vulnerability mm-hmm. in general. Even in like, you know, you did this thing and it really like uh, uh, pissed me off. Like you you talked to my, I don't know, mom this way. I don't know, whatever. Having those like tough conversations and like like the one like you have to express that you you your feelings and then mm-hmm. your feelings can be rejected. You can, they can it's, a, it's mm-hmm. a valid concern to say well what if i say this and they're like oh really you feel that way you know that can happen mm-hmm. so you're putting yourself on the line and the benefit of you putting yourself on the line is that deeper connection deeper intimacy mm. 
yep. and allowing the other person to do the same. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have like a devil's advocate reply to that. And oh. I was gonna say the same to what Anissa said. We're like in in theory, that sounds fucking beautiful. You know, mm. you're vulnerable, they're vulnerable, happy mm. days, fuck yeah, vulnerability for everyone. But this is something that I think I do and I've been reflecting about it and I don't know if it's the right thing where I prioritize the pleasure of my sexual partner, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, I, rather than saying, Hey, I like this to start with, I frame it as, Hey, how can I know what you were like? Mm -hmm. And then that also leads to mm -hmm. them asking, what do I like in happy days whatever. But then like, I remember my first sexual experience, I like fully was like, uh, my only purpose here is to pleasure the other person. And I was like, fully getting into it and i was like very selfless mm -hmm. and i was and, and it was fine eventually i got my pleasure because it's just if the person you're with is a nice person they'll mm -hmm. reciprocate but then now i'm thinking like was i just emphasizing the other person's pleasure because i didn't want to face thinking about my own pleasure and i'm i'm kind of avoiding that if that makes sense mm -hmm. so i don't maybe it's not a direct reply to what maz said maybe it's like a separate mm -hmm tangent but because it, it's like in theory it's like great i'm being open i'm being vulnerable sometimes you know only snippets of vulnerability but i'm really interested in the other person mm -hmm. so i'm like is that kind of bad because i'm running away from something you know, one more question i would ask you just to add more context would you think you know given given your upbringing and how you perceived sex and pleasure and stuff do you th do you think that might you might still have some negative associations to you experiencing pleasure so that's why like you were sort of like you know what like i'm just here for you and then if, if i enjoy it that's fine too but <laughs> yeah that's a side effect <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no I, I definitely like look everything about sex at least in my life is heavily influenced by religion mm -hmm. um but but uh, yeah, there there is that component of like the whole like selflessness mm -hmm. is is glorified at least in my religion. You know, yeah. Can I add something? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there is more to it than religion. There is also these ideas around masculinity and what it means to be a good man. Mm. because I see this in my clinical work again with many men coming in very similar experiences that they're so focused on the pleasure of their partner that then they hard, they don't know how to talk about what is pleasurable for them or is it okay to ask mm. In, mm. for something that is pleasurable for me what would you say about me because there is this idea in the mainstream society that male sexuality is dangerous is predatory that mm. it's too much that you can harm especially a female partner with your sexuality so if you want to not to be any of those then you try to suppress your sexual desires and expressing your sexual desire in a way that feels pleasurable for you and then you try to prioritize your female sexual partner's pleasure and your pleasure is secondary or it's just a byproduct of that. Mm, yeah, I, I resonate with that. I don't know about you, Maz. 
Mm. I resonate quite strongly with the idea of like, I'm like always scared of hurting Mm. the girl. At least this is heterosexual sex, which is like weird. It's like by nature, I've never harmed anyone. So it's like, why do I have this? Why do I even think I'm capable of hurting? Mm -hmm. I'm not even that big of a person. So it's Mm -hmm. like, which is really interesting. I, I don't know if women also have that, those fears. Like I don't, really think a girl would be scared of hurting a guy in sex like no and no, i i don't think it's a very it's not common a common narr- narrative a common concern no it's like men we hurt we are like yeah. hypersexual and like yeah we see red mm. it's his bullshit narrative yeah. but yeah what do you think maz no i i agree and uh you know, you know when when, when uh, anissa was talking about the um, the wanting to pleasure the partner, like I just remembered, like this book I read, and I've actually recommended this book to like so many of my friends, some of them included. Um, it's called "She Comes First. Mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I, I really wanted to learn how 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 to do uh, how to be better in bed with my partners. Mm-hmm. So I like I like you know when I read a book and sort of mm-hmm. did this and. I remember, like, my partner really noticed the difference. He's like, oh, you're doing something different. What, what's happening? Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. I th- but so in in some ways, I think, I don't know. I, I thought that I was, it, it's good to to have that desire as well to to be a better partner in the bed as well as outside of the bed, you know? So, like, that desire to to be better by your partner and if if that desire is mutual, if the other mm-hmm. partner is sort of seeing it the same way and they want to try and be a better partner for you in every way they can, I think that's just the recipe for a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, no, I think even even for me, I I it's like a side note. I take a lot of pleasure in giving pleasure. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm getting pleasure just in different ways. It's so that's what I'm saying. Like sexual pleasure is not always like they orgasm then you orgasm it's like you can orgasm from the thought of them orgasming Mm -hmm. but like not actually orgasm (laughs) (laughs) yeah so it's very psychological yeah yeah Yeah. but um but i think it's that whole idea concept of shadow like what's the shadow of just purely focusing on someone else's pleasure yeah of course you know there's a good side and yeah the negative could be if that is purely that's the only way that you can have allow yourself to experience sexual pleasure is by your partner having pleasure you can also put pressure on them because Mm. because they're not in the mode they just didn't have this amazing orgasm this time you feel disappointed and you can't and i've seen this with many people so it's Mm. it's a balance no 100 but i do think there's also there's something very vulnerable about accepting pleasure like mm. like even in a sexual mm. context it's actually harder than you would think mm. to just not do anything and allow them to provide pleasure to you like to accept yeah. pleasure it's absolutely. it's really hard it's a lot harder than i ever thought it is yeah absolutely absolutely yes i agree yeah look i think the last thing i want to talk to anissa about um is a very controversial topic mm. And I'm curious on your personal opinion and professional opinion. It's about 
children mm-hmm. who identify as a different gender mm-hmm. to what they're like to the sex that they were born with and they undergo surgery because i know right now at least in social media like instagram tiktok it's a very very polarizing topic mm-hmm. where a lot of people are like look if people want to change their sex mm-hmm. uh, when they're adults when they're over 18 mm-hmm. that's totally fine but there are certain people who they feel really uncomfortable and they feel as though that the lgbtq plus community is pressuring kids and they're kind of glorifying being you know like non-heterosexual and they're glorifying being different and 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 people say that it stems from the need of people to have a meaning and a purpose and that's why they levitate towards coming out as bisexual or coming out as transgender or going through it like they see it as attention seeking mm. rather than an actual thing that needs to be done mm-hmm. so i'm curious like what what are your comments on on that view a couple of things first genital surgery on children has been and is being done in western societies as we're talking so genital surgery is being done on newborn children intersex children by australian doctors based on this idea binary idea of gender so if someone's genitals they um, look a bit different or their chromosomes are different to their genitals the doctors perform a surgery to basically fix the person oh so like actual sex change yes yes yeah intersex children and there is no need for what's intersex again so intersex are people that they don't fit into this binary physiological binary of male female so they may have xx chromosomes but have a penis for example Mm, so they have like or they may have testes as well as a uterus so yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm. there are no medical complications or health concerns so for these surgeries. Yeah, they can live a happy life. 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 Yeah, but but no one's questioning that because it's conforming to this binary idea of gender. Mm. But I don't know personally. I I really don't know. Don't have enough information of trans children that they're going through surgery to to like affirming surgery my understanding is that the surgery is usually done after they're legally an adult but maybe at around puberty some hormone blockers maybe prescribed yeah i think so yeah which that's not permanent when you stop that thing it just you can reverse that process so there's some myths there around surgery and and also based on psychology and sexology research gender identity is is just an internal experience and no one can tell you what gender you are what gender you're not so yeah it's just you can't tell from the outside if this person's really trans or really, or if, even if we talk about sex, sexual orientation, if they're really gay, they can only tell you based on their internal experience what they are. Yeah, like, can I poke at that? And like, because there's this very 
I feel like a, a lot of people have this belief that they say, oh, there's only two, there's only two fucking genders, men and women. There's penis and vagina, and mm-hmm. that's it. And but can you see why they would think that? Or do you think they're just wrong? So I don't get the question. So so there is a group of people that they don't even understand why what it why is it so necessary to have all of these different mm-hmm. labels and why can't people just be like you have a penis so you have like you're trans you have a penis mm-hmm. let's just call you a boy mm-hmm. you don't identify as a boy why the fuck does it matter let's just call yourself a boy get on with your life and continue like mm-hmm. what's the problem with that like like why why because mm-hmm. maybe like why is it so necessary to have all of these different labels and why is it so necessary to give them the chance to do this surgery? Why can't they just, you know, find a way to fit into the box and get on with their life? And, you know, if some would say there's bigger problems in life than someone's gender identity, you know, there's global warming or whatever Mm -hmm. the fuck is happening. So like, what do you say to that? Well, the thing is that gender and labels of gender like male female they come with a series of expectations that as a female as a woman as a girl these are the expectations of you how to behave the sort of opportunities that you are given the sort of clothes that you're allowed or not allowed to to wear the sort of jobs that you can go for or encouraged to go for so it's not like we're treating every child the same there are certain gender roles, even in, in families and in cultures that are very liberal, there's still differences in the way that we respond to children based on their genders. Mm. And so just saying that, okay, so you have a penis, be a boy, that has a lot of consequences in terms of, mm. and also your internal sense of being, if, for example, you are a boy, if I tell you, Simon, just be a girl and do everything that is girly from tomorrow, it's a challenge. It Mm. will be a very huge challenge for you. And there's a reason why, because of all these discriminations that people experience, the rate of suicide in um, transgender people is really high. It's four times higher than the general population. It's just because the way that they are treated. But like, is... So, so this is the thing. So the, let's just say, so I'm playing devil's advocate, by the way. This is not my personal belief. But let's just say I'm like, okay, I have a lot of empathy for mm-hmm. these people. Yeah. And I think by allowing them to go through a gender change, we're actually doing them a disservice. Mm-hmm. And instead, we should be providing them with the psychological support to figure out what's wrong with them. Maybe we should be doing research to say what's wrong with them. Maybe like there is this idea amongst you know the more conservative right that by making gender surgery acceptable Mm -hmm. we're doing those people a disservice how i don't understand disservice as you know let let me think of an example disservice as a child for example and once again i mean no disrespect by what i'm about to say a child really wants to eat 10 blocks of chocolate and you're like well let's just allow the child to have what it wants but then or or even an adult an adult wants to eat 10 blocks of chocolate and as a doctor you're like well that's not good for you you shouldn't be doing that you know because as far as i know there are a lot of side effects of these gender changes there's a lot of health consequences so Mm -hmm. it's like if you have 
a person who, as you said, someone who's born intersex mm. can live mm-hmm. a healthy life physically, whatever. Why make a healthy person go through all of this potentially unnecessary surgery? Mm-hmm. It's going to lead to a lot of um, risky health consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My personal opinion, and this is a bit controversial, but my personal opinion is that if we lived in a in a society that was very inclusive in terms of the way that people are treated, regardless of their gender, regardless of their gender expression, that many trans people wouldn't necessarily choose the surgery. And in fact, most trans people don't go through surgery. They usually go through just the hormone replace the hormone. therapy therapy. and so genital surgery is a very small percentage of trans people that's a fact but I think it would even be smaller because you're right it comes with a lot of health and um, so health consequences it's a significant surgery and you may lose sensations in your body etc etc so but the thing is that the reality is that we're not living in a society that is inclusive and safe for people who are of a different gender than just not binary cisgender people. And that's mm. why they choose, many, some people choose to have a surgery. Because when they affirm their body with their true gender identity, they are less discriminated against. So, so your response to those people who are generally empathetic is, if as a society we could be more accepting of diversity, mm. then potentially they wouldn't even need to get this. Mm. That's sex my check. personal view. Yeah. Mm. But, but then being more accepting of diversity is uh, using pronouns and whatnot, right? Yeah. So, so, but then those people who are conservative right wing don't want to use pronouns either because they say it's it's an infringement of their freedom of speech. Okay, why? People just don't like to be forced to say something. Well, they, they believe I like they believe that I should have the choice well, to call you whatever I want, and I shouldn't be forced to have to call you something. Well, it's very socially acceptable for us to introduce ourselves and share our names, and expect the other person to call us by our first name. For example, it's the same thing. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Why is it? If, freedom of speech problem but we don't have that same problem with the first name i should be able to call you whoever i want yeah yeah, exactly if someone comes and calls me jack you're like (laughs) call me whatever i want but there's something wrong with you Mm. that is really trying to like devil advocate i'm really trying trying to devil's advocate right but but it's but what you said actually makes sense. Like I'm, I'm gonna come back to the middle, mm. and actually, because one, one thing a lot of people say is like, oh, it's too hard to yeah. remember pronouns. But it's like, it's like literally, I, I had a, a social event at uni. It was like a social club, and first session, I asked everyone their name, and then I tried to remember. And then the second session, I went around in a group, and I remembered twenty people's names, mm-hmm. and everyone was like, wow, wow, like mm. how did you remember it? But it's like. People see that as like, good job. Like, yeah. it's a great thing to remember people's names. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not great with names. Yeah. I might mispronounce it. Or how do I pronounce this name properly? Exactly. So it's like, I'm genuinely curious. Like, that's actually the same thing. Yeah. 
And pronouns is only like 10, whereas names is like a gazillion amount of names. I don't even know 10 pronouns, but even, yeah, even if there were 10, still, even if it's like people are like, yeah, what if someone comes and says my pronouns are like, how am I going to remember that and repeat that? And I'm like, it's the same with unusual names or names from different languages. Sometimes we tr- we do our best to repeat that, and sometimes we change them with their permission and say, "Can I call you this instead?" Because I'm really struggling with that pronouncing your name right. We manage somehow with names, mm. but with pron, I think it's more of uh, an emotional reaction than mm. really pragmatic. Like what do you mean? Like what what emotional reaction? I think it just goes back to this whole idea of gender roles and patriarchy and holding power and being afraid especially if you're um, sitting on top of the hierarchy well you don't want to lose that privilege and yeah i Mm. think it's a i feel like it's a very big conversation no no it is (laughs) just i think this is really funny (laughs) but i'm gonna put on my devil's advocate Mm. right wing hat mm. you know i'm putting this hat on my head i'm a very mm. conservative man <laughs> there are people who believe the patriarchy doesn't exist okay i do want to talk about that i don't know maz what do you think what do you mean by that why don't you tell well no that? like there are people that say that there is no such thing as patriarchy like there is no such thing as men ruling the world it, it's a narrative that's been given to us by media and by fucking, I don't know. Is one of those men Andrew Tate by <laughs> Andrew Tate. <laughs> Potentially, no. But this is the interesting thing. I've actually met a few women in my life who also, like, it's really interesting. This whole, like, this whole conservative right thing, you, you would think that it's just a bunch of, like, angry men that are like, yeah, like, fuck mm. off. There are a lot of women that also mm. fit into this um, this way of thinking and, I'm not going to say one is right or wrong because mm. I just like to be in the middle. But there are also women that believe that they say, well, I can do anything a man can do. Mm. Like I've met these women. Like there are women that say, I can do anything a man can do. And I have, men have certain things they're good at. I have certain things I'm good at. Mm. You know, men have certain jobs that they're more likely to get in. But I also have certain benefits and certain advantages that men don't have. So mm. then they're like, there is no such thing as patriarchy um, because I can in a Western world do whatever the fuck I want to do. So therefore, I don't feel any different to a man. Mm. So, what there is no such thing as inequality. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm because I'm, I'm that, and I've always been raised with this very feminist, um, mm. you know, progressive left mentality. So to hear something like that from a woman was a bit like shocking to me. Mm. But do you think these people are deranged or do you think there's some validity in what they have to say? <laughs> I think he used the word deranged. <laughs> Everyone is deranged. <laughs> Everyone is fucking deranged. Unless they believe what I believe. Religion, what do you think, Master? <laughs> um, well, I think in the case of the a, a girl saying that, like, I don't know why, but I'm just thinking, like, it's reminding me of, like, the con- the conscious decision thing again. I don't know why. But I think if 
in the case of a guy, I think it would be a bit different. But in the case of a girl, if she doesn't see a problem with it, for her, I don't think there is a problem then. I don't know. I'm very confused with that with what Salim said. <laughs> yes, I'm very confused. No, I want to say just because something is not your personal problem, it doesn't mean that it's not a problem in general. We're talking about a systematic problem, mm-hmm. not an individual problem. Yeah, I don't experience some of the problems with patriarchy individually, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's not a problem for other people, other minority groups, other women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, I'm convinced by that. And and I, I wish we could go more in depth, but we have to wrap up this episode. Um, thank you very, very much, Anissa, for coming on. I think thank you for having me. Me and Maz have been excited to have these conversations. But before we wrap up, is there any final remarks, Anissa? Anything you want to let people know before they say bye to you? Go and have fun. Okay, nice. Yeah. Go home right now. <laughs> go home. Send write a letter to your partner <laughs> saying, I want you to touch my back more. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Maz, any any fun remarks? Um tell tell people what you want. Mm. Tell people what you want. Mm. Shit, that's nice. All right. And, and any final remarks from you? Look, the only thing I'm gonna say is go online and buy some sex toys. It's good for you. It'll help you grow. Experiment. Yeah. Experiment. And if I know you, then let me know. I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> if Sam doesn't know you, don't send him creepy messages about your sexual experimentation. That's it. If I don't know you, don't, don't contact me, please. Um, all right, easy. All right, guys. I'll see you next time. Maybe I won't. Maybe I will. All right, bye. <laughs> Fucking fuck. Let's go. Go to the meditation. Go to the meditation. I was like, I was like, man, she wanted to sit down. Come on. Masturbation. I wasn't empathizing with Hitler. Fucking fuck. Anything you want to do, you can be a professor. Wink, wink. Clearly, you spent too much time on the phone.